Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, here with the, the final week of Halloween times. It's always a sad day, but it's a happy day as well. Here's why. Because my co-host Reed and I, Reed, hello. Hello, Tyler. We are going to be talking about a movie that we both love so much. If, you listen to Battle, if you've listened to Battleship Pretension for the last year, you've probably heard me say the phrase, Bone Tomahawk. Oh, in the area of, I'm going to say, 50 times. <laughs> uh, I, this is a movie that I can't really stop talking about. It's a movie that I've recommended to a number of people. As have I. Very specific people, though. Yeah. It's yeah. not for everyone. It's this weird hybrid. It's not for every horror fan. Right. That's nor true. is it for every Western fan. It is a Western horror but if you're a specific type of Western fan, you're, you, you'll probably be fine with it. Mm -hmm. Same as uh, if you're a horror fan. There's a slow burn element to it. But also, there are big payoffs from a gruesome, uh, gross standpoint. Yes. It is remarkably tense. Mm -hmm. It is uh, beautifully written, wonderfully acted. Um, this is a movie that when you and I got together to record about Inside Out, I had just seen it. And you oh, had seen, right. and you had just seen it. You had seen it already, and uh, we wound up talking for an hour about the movie. Yeah, we basically did a whole episode worth of talking, <laughs> but weren't recording. So now here we are doing this. Yeah, um, yeah. So I will say because there there will be some spoilers. This it's not really that much of it's not the kind of movie that like lends itself to spoilers. But nonetheless, right. I'll, I'll I'll say that you know we're going to spoil it and. I'll just say you owe it to yourself. There are some, I know, hey, listener, I know that sometimes you'll listen to the show without having seen the movie. It makes no sense to me, but here's what I'm going to say. Don't do that this time. Mm. Stop listening right now. Go and rent Bone Tomahawk, or better yet, just buy it, because you're going to want to own it, obviously. <laughs> I, di I did. Um, <clears throat> and then come back. Because there are things in this movie that I wouldn't want to spoil. Again, it, it's yeah. not a, it's not a movie with twists or anything like that. Right. But there right. are just some developments that, as we describe them, words aren't enough. But if yeah. but they're enough that if you if you know it's coming, you'll be kind of bummed out that we robbed you of the initial uh, punch to the stomach yes. um, that this film will often provide. So. I'm going to throw it to you because you saw it first. Bone Tomahawk yeah. was a movie that uh, a number of people were recommending to me. And I believe you said, hey, you should see Bone Tomahawk. I want to know what you think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you saw it, and, you re and I've only seen it the once, mm -hmm. you rewatched it. Yes. Yeah, I did. To prepare for this. So uh, I'll just, general thoughts, Bone Tomahawk, what do you got? So Bone Tomahawk was a real surprise for me. I go through, this is a little silly, but at the end of every year, I'll look at, you know, like Rotten Tomatoes or some, you know, what are some of the best movies of the year? And I'm looking for things I've missed, looking for things that, because I don't get out to the theaters as much. And so I'm looking for things that I can latch onto that I'm interested in that I might have missed. Bone Tomahawk showed up in a couple of different lists. And the words that clued me in were Western and horror. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay. This is right up my alley. I love me a good Western, and I love me a good horror film. So Western and horror both have the potential to be very bad, and they also, when they're great, are some of my favorite movies. So I was like, let me give this a shot. 
And I put it on one night almost as an afterthought. Like, oh, it's the next one in my Netflix queue. I still get the DVDs. Uh, it's the net one. It's the next one in my Netflix DVD queue. I'll just give it a shot. And I threw it on. And about about twenty minutes in, I was like, "Hey, it's really well written. Yeah. It's, it's really well acted." About an hour in, I'm like, "My goodness, this is so well written. Oh my goodness, this is so well acted." By an hour and a half in, I was like, I, "I'm not quite sure if I can handle what I'm watching. Like this is in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like this is really affecting me. Like some of the things that they're dealing with in this film." And I love these characters, and I I love this scenario so much. There's so much happening in the narrative beats of the story that when it was over, and it was sadly half past midnight, I had I had nobody. Yeah, <laughs> I had nobody to do anything because because I'm sitting here going, there's not a person in my life right now that I can text except to say please watch this movie. Yeah, and I still had to hold on to like I can't I can't tell anybody what yeah. I've just gone through, and for me that was that was a very good thing. Because it's rare for a movie to affect me this much. I'll say as a Western, so plenty of decent Westerns, I would even say plenty of good Westerns have come out in the last several years. But the last movie I saw that affected me this much was Unforgiven in 92. Hmm. So it, is, it has been a long stretch for me to see a Western, and I love the genre, to see a Western that I can sink my teeth into. And Bone Tomahawk is absolutely a proper Western. Like sure. It is, it, it, I know that there's it's got this hybrid thing going on, but it is unquestionably, and I would even say it's a Western first. That it's a that Oh, it's, no question about it. Yeah. I mean, when you get to the core of it, I mean, it's basically the searchers mm. uh, in its own way. Yeah. And so I feel like, but just with these other elements. Right you know, brought into it. Exactly. And so for that, for that regard, I just really, um, I just really took away a lot of, when I was rewatching the film again, I was remembering with each new introduction, the moment Bruder walks into the saloon, the moment that Chicory shows up and asks, <laughs> and, it, and has that great line where he's like, wow, that tea smells gruesome. And then he's like, it's soup. He said, oh, can I have some? <laughs> and uh, like the moment that we see Chicory and Sheriff Hunt and Mr. O'Dwyer, like every single time I resaw these characters, the I had the exact same reaction every time. Oh my goodness, I love these people. Yeah. And for a film to do that for me is as much as I love movies, that's significant. For, for a, a film to present such fully realized characters to the degree that the moment I see them back on screen, I'm like, man, I love this character. And that that's my consistent reaction with each new introduction of yeah. our heroes in this regard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could go on for the rest of the episode. I'm going to restrain myself because I, I love this film. I've recommended it to four other people um, so far. Uh, everyone, and I'm, uh, that's not including yourself. Okay. So far, every other person has come back to me and said, "Like, wow, that was that was really impressive." Like, and and two others uh, have expressed the same sort of love and affection for it that that I have. I, I just think it's a really remarkable movie that, if you have the sensibility for it, people need to see. Yeah. Um, aside from yourself, the people that I the people I know that have seen it have not loved it quite as much as I have. Gotcha. Um, but they still love it. They still really respond to it. But just the level of enthusiasm that I have about mm-hmm. the film is uh, mirrored only by yourself. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was a movie that last year that I had heard kind of bandied about. It was, uh, I heard horror Western. It's called bone Tomahawk. Mm-hmm. 
and it featured uh, Kurt Russell, who I was associating with the Hateful Eight. Same came out same year as Hateful Eight. Right, He's got the same right. facial hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so everything about it seemed pulpy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that's a bad thing. And I, the big thing that I had heard as well was Richard Jenkins. Like oh, you need yeah. to pay attention to Richard Jenkins. Um, you know, uh, over at the BPs, a few people submitted him for supporting actor, but not quite enough for him to get the, the nomination. nomination. Had I seen it in time, I definitely would have included him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, my job is such that I, I sit at a computer and I work on photos while I have something else on. And because it was pulpy, I thought like, I'll just throw that on, you know, yeah. it's fine. It'll just be this fun probably really well-made movie, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the first scene is very powerful and yes. very uh, distinct. Mm-hmm. And I found my eyes drifting away from my photos during that. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'll just finish this scene. And then uh, the scene is always like, oh, wow, that's pretty rough stuff. And so it's like, all right, back to work. And I only lasted like another five minutes before I decided, okay, work is going to be put on hold (laughs) and I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch this movie for two hours and 10 minutes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, It is just such a remarkable achievement, especially from a writing standpoint, but also an acting standpoint. Like these are, you know, you talked about loving these characters Mm -hmm. and, you know, there really are in the posse there are four yes um there is also uh, there are some wives that are Mm. also important characters um and so the posse each character is very distinct we know Mm. who they are they are in many ways archetypical yeah or archetypal i never know what you're supposed to say Mm. and you know it's it's not unlike you know the magnificent seven or uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just very specific characters that in many ways could be summed up in, uh, if you look at actually the, the different sets of posters. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, the doctor, the law, the mm-hmm. deputy. Uh, I, what is it? Uh, Bruder is an armed gentleman. The armed gentleman, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, you know, you could you could put it that way, and then for movie people, you could say like, okay, here's the John Wayne, here's mm-hmm. very much Walter Brennan mm-hmm. with uh, Richard Jenkins. You could put it in those ways, but none of them work 100% because these characters yeah. are so much more complex mm-hmm. than than simply what they represent. And th- and it's something that they themselves come to realize over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the John Bruder character played by Matthew Fox, we all kind of know what he is and, and we see him as a, a racist and kind of a, and a murderer and just kind of an all around sleaze ball who can't really be trusted. Um, and undoubtedly everybody else does as well. Like he's the one that's like, yeah, he's a good gun. He's a good gunman and we're going to need that. But let's not count on him for anything. Mm, mm-hmm. But uh, over the course of the film, every and he, def, I think he definitely looks down on some of the people that he's with. Right. And over the course of the film, everybody just comes to respect one another, and mm-hmm. and it's just such a it's so wonderful to see an ensemble that works really well together, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's a function of the writing and the acting, like this this writer, uh, Craig, uh, Zoller, 
he he just seemed to it's like he discovered these characters more than actually wrote them yeah. and they just he just knew like okay so if Bruder says this then Chicory's going to say that we just know it obviously like yeah. he was talking about friends mm-hmm. um and it just flows so naturally um and there's not it's not often that in a western or a horror movie much less a horror western that you're going to find a lot of genuine human complexity right uh in relationships and nuance in character in a character's flaws and that sort of thing and so it's it's just a movie that just bowled me over yeah i was just not i was not expecting this and yeah you know if you watch special features you can tell the actors themselves they knew this was something special yeah uh first off you know kudos to kurt russell who like ran across this script like a couple years ago and said like this is something that needs to happen i want to play this character i think he's he's a producer behind it and you know i he recognized that there's that this is a, a an an unusually good project yeah um and it's worth noting, and I think he delivers his best performance ever in the film. And that's something, that's yeah. not something I say lightly. I think he's a better actor than a lot of people give him credit for. And, uh, but it, we'll get to the performances in a moment. But, um, and I remember in the, in the special features, they interview Richard Jenkins and he actually, you know, they've done this interview probably months after they've, they're done filming Easily. and he starts quoting dialogue. Like the dialogue has stayed with him yeah. as a performer. And, you know, you Undoubtedly, he's had to he's had to memorize thousands of lines of dialogue over the mm-hmm. years. And my guess is, okay, once I'm done with the project, I'm just going to have to move on to the next one. But no, these ones stayed with him. Yeah, and there's a reason for it because yeah. it's just it's it's unique. It's it's not necessarily David Mamet, but like it's unique dialogue that still somehow sounds completely naturalistic. Yeah. And can I tell you how frustrated I am uh, in the best way possible by Craig Zoller? Because we've we've talked a couple of times. The Babadook was a first film. Mm-hmm. The Witch is a first film. Bone Tomahawk is a first film. Yeah. But not only is it a first film, the script was a first draft. Oh. Which makes me so angry. Because yeah. And I mean... Kudos to him because he's he's amazing. He's a he's a writer and a filmmaker. I guess he's got a couple of books out as well that are mm. a little bit more difficult to locate. But but uh, he's a writer and a filmmaker that I'm going to be paying very close attention to from now on. But yeah. the fact that that script was a first draft, a I find it difficult to believe. There's a part of me that kind of wants to believe it because I'd love to believe that first drafts can be that good. Yeah, but. It's it's just so impressive to me, and it's exactly what you just said that it's it's almost as if he unearthed this story, yeah. rather than crafted it, because it is so it is so um, fully realized every every element of the story. I don't think there's a single wasted element in the movie, and it's two hours and twelve minutes long. Yeah, which is which I'll say this if. I believe it's a first draft because of the length of the movie. Oh, I don't think it, I, I, I think it probably could be a little bit shorter. I'm not saying it needs to be. Oh, I'm sure. saying it could sure. be. Uh, and the idea of something being writing something and it's a little bit too long and then you kind of just pare it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's very much a second draft situation. Sure. And so this being a first draft, this is the first I'm hearing of it. And simply by length, mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah. Nothing else. 
Everything else nope. seems like a, you know, 13th draft or something oh like that. Oh my goodness. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the lines itself, there are so, we, we talked about the distinctness of each character the, and it's not purely in the performances, like on paper. Like I'm, if I'm just looking at the lines, I'm like, that's something Sheriff Hunt would say. That's yeah. something Chicory would say. That's something Bruder would say. They speak differently. Yeah. And uh, they are remarkably human. And Mr. O'Dwyer is a character of faith, but it's, it's not on the nose. And yeah. it's, not in, it's not so you know, oppressive in his delivery of it. Bruder, as you already talked about, he's, he's uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a racist to a yeah. degree. Um, definitely has some some past things that he carries with him. But one of the things I love is how the character kind of has this balance of pride and shame yeah. in what he's done. And <clears throat> that's not just in Matthew Fox's performance, which I think is some of his best work, yeah. but it's also in, in the script, in the way he talks about it. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when he's saying that he's going to go off with the posse and they, which nobody calls it a posse. I'm calling it a posse. But right. um, <clears throat> when he says he's going to go off with a group with them, he says, I'm, you know, I'm responsible for bringing her in because I knocked on the door and I brought her over into it, which we haven't talked about what the scenario is for the movie yet. But uh, he says, and I've killed more Indians than any of you, anybody in this room. Yeah. There's an Indian standing in the room. Yeah. And he says, that's an ugly boast. And Bruder just looks right at him and says, it's not a boast, but a fact. Yeah. And the fact that like on paper, the statement, it's not a boast, like that says so much to me about how that character carries it. He's yeah. not he's not grandstanding. It's just I'm yeah. the most qualified to do this. And then we learn much later in the film how many people he's killed and why he has killed so many of them. And there's a great deal of sympathy that begins to flood in for that character. Um, and then you could go on and on. I, I don't even know where to begin with Chicory and how much I adore Chicory. Well, it's just I mean, I saw this film actually before I saw um 310 to Yuma oh, okay. before I saw Red River, which I don't know if you've ever seen Red, I've River. Said Red River. Yeah, I've seen Red River. That movie is astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. I had heard it was good. I did not know it was going to be that good. And I love it. It is one of my, it's like a top five Western for me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I didn't know, I didn't know Walter Brennan. Mm. I had no exposure to him at all. Except, of course, for certain characters in movies and TV shows who eh, sort of talk like this, and you know, right, right. and it's like, and then you see Walter Brennan's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I got it now. Um, and I had heard someone describe Richard Jenkins as the Walter Brennan character, and I thought, like, all right, I don't know what that means. And then you see Walter Brennan, and you think, okay, it's not merely a sidekick, right? It is. Alfred in, in yeah. the life of Bruce Wayne. Yeah. It's a sidekick. It's a conscience. It's a, it's somebody that might need to be saved sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, somebody who could be potentially a burden, but it's a burden. Everybody is happy to bear because of the role he plays in their life. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a, he's such a wonderful character and Richard Jenkins who has the ability to play because chicory is something of a simple man yeah but that doesn't mean he's dumb and it doesn't mean he's not ex that he's not wise mm -hmm. and 
And Richard Jenkins is like the perfect actor for that because I've yeah. seen him play characters that just aren't that bright. Mm-hmm. And I've seen him play characters that are exceedingly intelligent. I've seen him play uh, corrupt characters. I've seen him play pure characters. Mm-hmm. He's he's a marvelous actor. And I'm very happy. He's been you know bouncing around for like 30 years. Sure. But I do like that in 2008 when he was in The Visitor, which yeah. is a movie that mm-hmm. I love. And he was nominated for an Oscar. I, I like that that opened up a lot of doors for him. Sure, and, sure. And that he is, you know, he hasn't really been the lead in anything else. Uh, right. But the types of parts he's, the types of supporting roles he's played are not necessarily showier, but they're more distinct. Yeah. And he does such a wonderful job with, with Chicory because it's just, you know, there comes a moment when Chicory and, well, everybody is in danger of mm. getting killed. And I don't want any of them to die, but for some reason it feels like, no, 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 you, you can't kill Chicory. You can't hurt him. Yeah. Not, not like you're unable to, but it's like, no, you're not allowed. Mm -hmm. Craig Zoller. I'm going to get mad at you (laughs) if you kill Chicory. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just a marvelous character. And you talked about Bruder already. Uh, and then Patrick Wilson, and we'll end with, uh, Kurt Russell in a moment, but like, Patrick Wilson is an actor who is very interesting because he has, he's a good looking guy, but in kind of a nondescript way, mm-hmm. even his name is not that interesting. Uh, yeah. but he plays, he's so, he makes interesting choices, not merely in the parts he picks, but also how he chooses to play them. Yeah. Um, I find myself naturally sympathizing with him. I think he has a, he, a sympathetic air to him. Um, though admittedly I did not see hard candy, uh, where he plays a predator. I saw Um, it. And, but I think he undercuts that. I think he, he doesn't want to play a character that's a hundred, a hundred percent sympathetic. And you know, his, his character in bone tomahawk is his circumstances make him sympathetic. You know, he's, he's been hurt. Mm -hmm. His wife gets, uh, kidnapped. Right. And you know, everything about that is like, Oh, this poor guy. Um, but I think he recognized like, yeah, just because his circumstances are bad doesn't mean he's a saint. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he gets jealous sometimes he's, he makes bad decisions sometimes. Right. Um, I think there's a certain degree of pride, uh, a certain degree in him. Um, definitely a stubbornness that, and, and the frustration of, yeah, you're a burden and you don't realize it. Mm -hmm. And in your attempt to be noble, you're becoming more of a burden, you know, and it's frustrating. But I think Patrick Wilson understands that, and that, that's a writing thing as well, but I think he he doesn't try to make the character noble despite all of this. I think he's trying to just craft a, f- a fully realized three-dimensional character yes. because I think he understands that the more flawed this character is, the more we cheer when he finally... Oh my when he shows himself when he when he you know, proves his medal, as yes. they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so I love his performance as well. Mm-hmm. He's he's the least showy of the bunch. Yeah. Um, as far as just the nature of the character, but he's all he's a very important character, and and I love the depiction of his faith. Yes. There is a moment that you and I, 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 I get exhilarated by it mm-hmm. because there's a scene in the Apostle. Where Robert Duvall's character is walking down the street, he's in an unfamiliar town, and he doesn't really, he has no, he doesn't have a destination, he's just walking, and at one point, and it's kind of a humorous moment, he's, he, he, 
sweeps his his pointer finger back and forth like this street or this street and he's saying which way lord which way do i go right right and there's just a casual there's you know it, when we talked about the witch we talked about assurance you know right right there's an there's an assurance uh, uh or an assuredness i guess in mm-hmm. robert duvall's uh relationship with god and when patrick wilson arthur when he is surveying some of the things that we're ta- that that we will talk about later there's a moment when he talks to god like he was a friend and he says are you seeing this mhm mhm love it oh, i it's, love it so much yeah it's one of my favorite depictions of uh, a character of faith in the last couple of years and and something that i don't want to derail too much on but i i'm noticing more and more um i can point to three um, moments in the last like three or four years where a character of faith is portrayed in a way that I think is substantive and positive. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm happy to see that trend kind of, because typically characters of faith are usually caricatures. Yeah. Um, but, but the fact that it's very, uh, it's overt that he's a person of faith. He yeah. says grace before the meal and, and uh, will apologize when his mouth gets, you know, too too profane. Yeah. He will apologize to the, very casually. You talk about the friendship. He'll very casually look up and say sorry. You know, like. Yeah. And but then that moment that you're talking about, I remember when I saw that moment, and I can remember thinking the first time I watched the movie, saying to myself, and it was the first moment that I saw that that I said this to myself. I said, "How I feel about this movie may be ultimately affected by how they treat." this moment and yeah. this character because I was like, if they're going to make fun of him or if they're going to dwindle it all down, then some of what I'm really impressed by may sort of dissolve into yeah. some disappointment. That is not what they do no. in, in the slightest, but they also don't make it like the answer. They could have easily gone the other say and say, look, well, it's because of his, uh, his faith that all of these other things happen. Yeah. We talked in the witch about how there are, spirituality can be kind of a bedrock, but then there's all these other elements to it as well, the physical, the mental, all this other sort of stuff. And I think uh, Mr. O'Dwyer is very much, that's Patrick Wilson's character, very much he is, he has a bedrock of faith, but then there's also his stubbornness. Mm -hmm. There's also, like, as you said, his metal, which is the perfect word for it. The fact that he is just completely determined to fulfill this course. It's what, uh, what Kurt Russell's character, Sheriff Hunt, says when they're about to head out, he says, uh, myself and Mr. O'Dwyer are going to go after them. There's no choice for us. Yeah. The rest of you can stay behind. And I just love how he throws in that there's no choice for us. Like, yeah. And it's it's true. For the two of them, there's no way they were staying yeah. behind. There's no way they were going to. Um, and, oh, my goodness. it's, it's I love wonderful. this movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I've been this giddy about a movie on, a, on the podcast. Yeah. Um, mm. Just because, yeah, lines like that, they're not necessary, mm. but they are so necessary. Yeah. Because, and I'll go ahead and pivot to Kurt Russell now and Sheriff Hunt. I do think this is Kurt Russell's best performance. Um, and there was a, did you see Foxcatcher? I did. I okay. liked it a lot. Uh, I remember reading in, uh, uh a review of it in which somebody was talking about Mark Ruffalo's character and that, you know, characters like that 
who have an inherent decency to them mm-hmm. usually aren't there aren't that interesting right especially if they're surrounded by people that are deeply flawed or even a little bit insidious as as you get in foxcatcher right um but that mark ruffalo finds a way to make decency not merely interesting but maybe the most interesting right that's absolutely how i feel about sheriff hunt it's absolutely how i feel about kurt russell who he is a good man, mm-hmm. a very decent man. Yeah. And he wants what's right. Yeah. He's not corrupt. He's not overly brutal, mm-hmm. but he's not naive either. You know, he's, he's old enough. And at this point, like in the old West, if you get, if you've lived in the old West for long enough, and I think Sheriff Hunt is in his fifties at this point, mm-hmm. you've probably seen some stuff, especially if you're a lawman. Yeah. And, and Kurt Russell just, he doesn't overplay things. He doesn't, he doesn't layer on meaning because the lines are already so meaningful. He just sort of lets the character be. And it is such a, such a wonderful way to approach that character that when you have, you know, the armed gentleman Mm -hmm. and you've got this Walter Brennan character and then you're surrounded by monsters, by the way. Yeah. And that this character remains the most, in, to me, the most intriguing and interesting character in the film. Uh, and I say that as somebody who probably, uh, I am like Mr. O'Dwyer. Mm-hmm. I'm a man of faith. I'm not super effectual in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I can be very stubborn. And I have no doubt that I could probably, in a, cer- in a situation like this, I'd probably be the burden that other people have to bear. Right, right. So even though I find a character that's very much a Tyler Smith surrogate, um, I, I nonetheless find Sheriff Hunt to be so intriguing yeah, and so watchable. And that is something that, so over at Battleship Pretension, uh, by the time this goes up, this will be over a month old now, but uh, we recently polled our listeners for the, the top 25 actors mm. and the top 25 actresses. Kurt Russell... First off, the fact that he made it in the top 25 at all is strange to me. Hmm. But he made it, I think he was like number 14, which I will go ahead and say that's too high. Hmm. But there is an element to him that is just so watchable. If he's ever on screen in any part, my eyes are on him. Mm -hmm. He's a very specific type of movie star that you don't really get much anymore. And even, and as he's gotten older and will still like, you know, he'll, he'll still hide his face underneath uh, this crazy facial hair and stuff like that. And he's, and he's kind of craggy now. He doesn't have like his, his, his offbeat good looks of the eighties and nineties. Um, he, there is a magnetism to him Mm -hmm. that he thankfully is able to temper in a movie like this. Yes. Um, I just can't. I can't, there's, there's an intangible quality to his performance that I feel like I can't even start to get at. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with that. We, um, over at the fear of God, we've been spent, we've spent this month talking about John Carpenter. Sure. And, uh, Kurt Russell made four films with John Carpenter. And one of the things that we commented, I believe in our episode of, of, about the thing, we commented on the fact that if you were to watch his performance back to back to back in escape from New York, then the thing then Big Trouble in Little China, 
you'll begin to get a picture of just how diverse of an actor he is yeah. and how deliberate some of his choices are in how he's crafting something. And while I would also kick against 14, sure, um, I think he definitely deserves to be on the list. And he's, since Bone Tomahawk and since watching all of the John Carpenter stuff, my esteem for him has risen highly uh, to where I'm, I'm taking a step back and going, you know what? I don't know that I would normally have included him yeah. on a list of favorites, but he's so dependable. And I think he's doing things as an actor, particularly in Bone Tomahawk, that, as you said, are, are hard to put your finger on because it is a certain uh, – a, a certain ah, – man, I so hesitate to use this word, but I can't find another one right now. Whereas, but there's just an aura about some some internal work that he did in preparing for the role, yeah. whether that's just a function of his craft as an actor or whether that's something inherent in him as a person. There's something internal that he brings to this role that is nowhere in the script. Sheriff Hunt would have been a decent man even in Craig Zoller's script. Yeah. But Kurt Russell – it's like, just forget about it. This is this is the anchor for this film. Well, and he did it the same year that he did the Hateful Eight, Hateful Eight. and I think he's great in the Hateful Eight. By the way, um, I think it's it's I think it's unfortunate that when people were talking about the the various characters and performances that they liked, that people didn't talk enough about him, hmm. um, because even though he is definitely adopt, he's it's it's heightened, sure, unlike in this movie. Um, and he's definitely adopting a certain John Wayne cadence. Mm -hmm. There are moments that are actually quite very quiet. Uh, anytime he is talking about the Lincoln letter, like you just see mm -hmm. this tough guy persona go away and you see an almost childlike excitement yeah. about it. And a and, wonder. And a wonder, yeah. And, and choices like that, uh, which kind of undercut the toughness of the character. And that's not a thing that you, you know, the Hateful Eight is not a movie that's very interested in undercutting the toughness of, the, right, of its characters. Right. Um, but yeah, he made very specific choices to, to humanize John Ruth uh, a little bit. And when you think like he was in two Westerns in one year, let's look at them and just see how mm -hmm. varied his performances right. are right. and how he can tailor it to the movie he's in. You know, the script for Bone Tomahawk and the script for Hateful Eight are both very dialogue heavy and right. dialogue dependent actually. And, and yet he finds such different things to, uh, to bring out in these characters. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, no, <laughs> I just can't get enough of like how amazing this movie is. And it is so difficult to know, you know, we have, we have a finite amount of time on an episode but it is so difficult to even know where to begin because yeah. you could come. You, I think there are films out there that you could do this with. But Tyler, we could talk for this entire episode about performance alone. Yeah, we could talk for this entire episode about script alone, um, yeah. and then we could move into you know a host of other things that we could easily have such a conversation about. And I think it's a it's a real special thing when a movie like this comes along that does give you. And I can say this because. Uh, I was rewatching uh, a number of films to prepare for a couple of different podcasts that I was that I was part of, and uh, one of them was Bone Tomahawk. And I remember thinking, okay, I've seen Bone Tomahawk before. It's late in the evening. Uh, I'm just going to watch the first, 
you know, 20, 30 minutes of it just to, because it's late in the evening, I'll get some sleep. I'll just watch the first little bit of it and I'll watch the rest later. No, I'll watch the whole thing. Yeah, of because, course. <laughs> because it just, and I, and I had seen it before and I knew what was coming. But that's the thing. I think the first time <coughs> you keep watching because you want to know what happens. Mm-hmm. The second time you keep watching because you know what happens. Because you know what happens, yeah. Um, right. And I think that's like the mark of a really good movie like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, for those that, that don't know, it's, it's a fairly simple story where this, in a small town, uh, these very wild humanoid type creatures that I think are just referred to as troglodytes. Troglodytes, yeah. Um, they essentially invade this town and they kidnap a couple of people and take them off somewhere. Yeah. And uh, one of the people, uh, so one of them is a sheriff's deputy. Yes. And the other is uh, the town doctor who uh, uh, also happens to be the the wife of Patrick Wilson's character. Now, here's something interesting. So I had forgotten this until my rewatch. So she's actually not the town doctor. Oh, okay. The town doctor was drunk. Right. The whole reason that she got involved is because the town doctor was drunk. And the sheriff um, had, there's a a very, very small part played by David Arquette, who Mm -hmm. also does a pretty great job in the little that he's asked to do. Um, but, uh, that drifter wanders into town, the sheriff injures him mm-hmm. uh, through an altercation. And then because the town doctor is drunk, our character Bruder played by Matthew Fox has to go to, I guess she's the backup doctor. Yeah. She's the, you know, a student or something. She's the one that they call when the doctor is not on call. Yeah. Um, and so that's how she gets involved in it. And then these troglodytes kidnap the three of them. They kidnap yeah. the, the drifter who's wandered into their town. Yeah. Cause they're basically tailing him. Yes, like he's he, the reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's because he desecrate he, with his partner, yeah. um, had had desecrated their land. Um, yeah. It was it was somewhat accidental, but it was because they were being belligerent and they're they're uh, they're killers and thieves and they're bad people. Yeah. And they had invaded this this area that belonged to these troglodytes. So when they when he escaped that area, they followed him into this town, and it was just the very bad fortune for the deputy and misfortune for the uh for the doctor that or for uh mrs o'dwyer that they were tending to him when the troglodytes came and they took all three of them which prompts our heroes yeah so they they go out into the wilderness and they don't really know where they're going right um there's looking for some kind of clue and uh and so you know it's it's the film's mostly about their journey but i did want to mention one thing real quick because this is a thing that uh Nobody has made this complaint, but they could, ha- the, the complaint I'm about to say, mm. but they could have. But Craig Zoller is such a good writer that I think he understands, that I think there's a reason that people didn't. And that is, this is a film that could be, that people could take as like somehow insulting to like Native Americans. Oh, I'd say. Because mm-hmm. we've got the town, which is civilization, and we've got these savages that come in. You know, I already said it's like the searchers. Right. Um, right. We've got these savages who come in and and do these really horrible, vile things, sure. which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and it's up to society, it's up to civilization, you know, the white man to go mm-hmm. out and, and take care of business. I've not read a single review with that interpretation. Right. Here's why, in my opinion. The very the the two characters we see first are David Arquette and Sid Haig. They are 
they're in the first scene, right? The, the, the opening shot, yeah. And I believe it starts with them horribly murdering mm-hmm. innocent people. Yes. And then there even comes, and, and they're very casual about it, and it's really gruesome. Mm-hmm. And then there comes a moment when one of the people that they tried to murder is actually still alive. And so what do they do? They grab a rock and just beat him with a rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is savage. Mm-hmm. And it, so the first thing we see in the whole film are white men savagely, you know, civilization being just as savage as we see the troglodytes being later. You're absolutely right. But then also the flip side is we do see a, an actual Native American mm-hmm. uh, in the film who is a part of the town. Yeah. And he's very quick to say, these guys are not us. Yeah. He says, these are not my people. Yeah. Yeah. Because somebody hurls that at him. They say, you yeah. know, well, you, these are your people. You know, he said, these are not my people. Yeah. And it's interesting. You made the this thing about Savage. It, it's called out in the script mm-hmm. because as they're wandering through, David Arquette's character, Purvis, says, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't go in here. And the other character, Buddy, uh, who's played by Sid Haig, he says, oh, you know, these are just savages. It's not for civilized men. And then Zoller knowing what he's doing Mm -hmm. as soon as it's funny but as soon as he says you know it's not for civilized men the very next shot is him scratching his groin with his gun yeah (laughs) right after he said you know this is not for civilized men which Zoller knew he's going to make a distinction here that you know these are our our savages yeah and I'm not going to go too deep into this but it's later referenced in talking about Purvis and mm-hmm. and Purvis's ultimate fate. It's later referenced like he was a bad man and he did bad things. Yeah, and and that that our characters were right to suspect him and they were right to try to to hold him accountable for what it. Despite yeah. everything else that happens, they were right to recognize this as a bad man. And if you look at the the whole character of Bruder and what he is, and when he says, I've killed more Indians than anybody else, and he seems kind of ashamed of it, mm-hmm. but he's also, it, it came about from revenge, but I think even he recognized that, yeah, disproportionate. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've done, I've gone way beyond what I should have. He knows that. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it speaks to, not to imply that a film that manages to subvert, uh, standard PC outrage. Not that that's the mark of quality or anything like that, (laughs) but I think a good movie is one that can make somebody forget, uh, how, you know, certain narratives, right. uh, Right. Positive or negative. Um, because it's not, it certainly is not a uh, fictional narrative that uh, white people came and completely decimated, uh, native Americans. (laughs) That is an actual thing that That is true. And, and that's a thing that we all know. And knowing that, it would be easy to look at this movie and say, this movie seems to think it was okay. Hmm. No one has said that to my knowledge. No, not and that. And that is because it. we're so ingrained, we're so engaged with these characters mm-hmm. and so engaged with this story. Um, and so I do want to talk. So let's talk about these troglodytes. Oh, boy. Man, oh, man. I have told you, I told you when we talked about the witch. Um, spiritual things uh, or, or supernatural horror tends not to bother me. It'll be unsettling, but it doesn't, it doesn't really scare me. Right. What scares me is inhumanity mm-hmm. in humans, mm-hmm. by the way, and animals as well, but they're animals, you know? Right. So a great white shark is just an animal. It's still a monster. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And they should all be destroyed <laughs> as should spiders. Yes. 
Um, all right, I'm not in favor of wiping out entire species. <laughs> okay, I get that. But at except the same for spiders. Time, spiders. Except for spiders. Spiders are fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are monsters. If they were, you know, I would say if they were bigger, they'd try to eat you, except they already try to eat you um, or at least hurt you. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it wouldn't be Halloween times if we didn't bash spiders, at least for a moment. That's true. And then and then we and last week we talked about sharks uh, mm. being monsters uh, in the shallows. So, um, but yeah, the companion film, which I'll, we won't get to, but I'll go ahead and say is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a mm. movie that I point to as like one of the scariest ever because it's people who are choosing to not see other people as human right right. they are choosing like you are a source of food Mm -hmm. you are a source of sexual pleasure whatever it might be right it's i don't you know i don't care who you are what you are yeah and that's and that idea is so horrifying to me Mm -hmm. um back when i would uh back when i would write scripts uh, a thing that i came to over and over again whether i was writing a a uh a thriller that actually wound up. I wrote it before taken came out. I'm not saying they ripped off my idea cause it wasn't finished and I didn't show it to anybody. <laughs> um, but it's, it was very similar to that. Gotcha. And, and there was a scene that I wrote in which the main character has a couple of the villains like tied to chairs and stuff. And he actually starts asking them about their, their hobbies and their lives and stuff like that. Hmm. And he says, okay, he's like, he goes, the reason that I'm asking is because I'm going to kill you and I don't want that. I don't want it to have no meaning for me. Hmm. He's like, and I also want, he goes, and I also want you to know that all the stuff that you put time and energy into that you, that you really valued your whole life in a minute, it will mean nothing to you hmm. because you're dead. And then he shoots him in the head. Wow. Um, so, you know, <laughs> you should finish that script. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I don't even know where it is. Um, <laughs> But, uh, excuse me. So the idea of a person, because think of what a person is, it's their philosophies, skills, Mm -hmm. life experiences, relationships, and that that doesn't matter at all to these, to the troglodytes, to Leatherface and his horrible family. Um, that to me is real horror. Yeah. Because if you'll pardon me, that's the kind of horror that makes the Holocaust happen. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of holo- that, that's the kind of horror that uh, allows a rapist to do what he does. It's true. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that gets to me. So these troglodytes are especially savage. Like mm-hmm. they, I mean, we see an instance of, of their savagery in the opening scene, but it's just kind of hinted at. It's like, Oh, this is really, they go after the character of buddy and they get him. Right. right. And mm-hmm. you get kind of an idea of like, Oh, this is, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, except I don't like this guy. So I'm fine with it. Uh, so we'll go ahead and talk about that scene. The scene. <laughs> Everyone know if you've seen bone tomahawk and I say that scene, even with no lead up, Everyone knows what I mean. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what I mean. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Poor Deputy Nick. Oh my goodness. Wow. Played by an actor whose name I sadly cannot pronounce. It is Evan Jonakite. I don't know. Jonakite. I don't know how you would say it. I'm not quite sure either, but I, yeah, yours is as good as yeah. I would give. Yeah. So Deputy Nick 
is not a, a, a developed character. Like we don't see him very much. We see him a little bit at the beginning. Everything about him seems expendable. But the brilliance of this screenplay again. So I'll talk about the emo- I'll talk about the the physical aspects of the scene, which is nothing. Like so, the the troglodyte, troglodytes at this point have captured uh, and imprisoned uh, Sheriff Hunt and Chicory. Yes, and they those two have to watch as Deputy Nick is scalped, yep. and then his scalp is shoved into his mouth. He is then turned upside down. His legs are spread, and then the troglodytes use the aforementioned bone tomahawk to hack away at his groin, whatever, just, you know. Mid-region. Mid Mid-region. And they just hack away, not because they're going after his genitals or anything like that. They're doing it so that they have uh, so that they have a rip going, so that when they pull his legs apart, he just rips in half. Yeah. It is some of the most, as someone who just, at the time of recording, just watched a lot of zombie movies. Mm-hmm. And have and I've I've seen some people ripped in half. This is maybe one of the goriest mm-hmm. scenes in any film ever. It's the most gruesome scene I have ever seen in any movie. And my favorite movie is The Exorcist. The yeah. it is it is the most gruesome scene I have ever seen in a movie because the camera does not cut away. Yeah, and you it, have no idea how they did it. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have had to have been, you know, like a, a mannequin fabrication, but wow, it's a convincing one. Uh, I mean, it's it's something I've described to people when they say like, okay, so what happens in the scene? You know, they'll hear me talk about the scene and they're, they're nervous about it. And they say, what happens in the scene? I said, uh, in the scene, I said, basically a human being is treated uh, like a fish. Yep. Essentially, like it's it's basically treated the way you would you would clean and prepare a fish for a meal. And that is what I'm, that is what gets me is they don't, if they like chopped off his arms Mm -hmm. and chopped off his head, of course that's horrible, but that's a thing that people do to people. Mm -hmm. It's still horrible, still savage, but that's recognizable as something that humans do to other people. The fact that they turn him upside down and just, Mm. just rip him in half like they were boning a fish, like they were ripping apart a chicken. Like they don't see him as a person. They don't care that he's a person. Like I said, they're not, you know, the fact that they're hacking away at essentially his crotch, that's not, they're not, they're not like targeting his crotch and it's not like, oh, it's symbolic. They're going after, no, it's just, this is the point at which his legs meet. And so we're going to need to hack away at that. Oh man. It is so disturbing but here is the – it's disturbing, and here's the thing. It's a character that hasn't been developed. But once again, the brilliance of Craig Zoller mm-hmm. is that right before Deputy Nick is horribly torn apart, he says what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. He assures – he sure. assures the sheriff mm-hmm. that – Hey, Purvis, this guy, he's dead now. Mm-hmm. And he was a bad guy. Like, I think he said, like, he told me all the stuff that he did. Yes. And raved about it. What was that? Raved, raved about, about it. About it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was a, he was a bad man and we were right. 
to hold him to account. Was that it? Something like he that? Said, yeah. He said you were, you were right to, oh gosh, see now I can't remember that line, but he, he says something like you were right to shoot him or you were right to, you were right to mistrust him or something, you know, that basically tells Sheriff Hunt you were right. And isn't it such, it speaks to who Deputy Nick is that in a moment when he knows what's going to happen to him, because he probably saw it happen to Purvis. Yeah. That in that moment, he is more concerned with reassuring the sheriff than he is cursing him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Saying that, like, you brought this on us. Mm-hmm. You brought this on me. Or trying to plead for his life or anything like that. It is, you were right. Yeah. And yes, look at where we are because of this. But you know what? Your instinct was right. We were trying to bring a bad person to justice. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it costs. And look at what it's about oh to cost me. Goodness. And it's such... He manages... Craig Zoller man, manages in 20 seconds of dialogue mm-hmm. to humanize Deputy Nick. Not just what he is saying, but the fact that he is saying it. Yes. Um, to the point that like... In that moment, I, as a viewer, was like, I think I would have liked to get to know Deputy Nick a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But now it's very much too late. Yeah. He's and he, you know he knows what he's what's about to happen to him because he asks Sheriff Hunt to send his things to his brothers. Yeah. So as you pointed out, he probably saw what happened to Purvis. He did see what happened to Purvis. So he so he to a degree knows what he's in for, and still, still. And and that's another another thing that I find genuinely as grotesque as that scene is. There's two elements that I find genuinely beautiful. One is what you've already mentioned is Deputy Nick's statement to to Sheriff Hunt. The other is Hunt's speech to Nick. Yeah. Um, because as they're doing this to him, Hunt just relentlessly, like a steam train, says, "You know, they're gonna the, the cavalry's coming, and they're gonna find these guys, and they're gonna bring them to justice. They're gonna kill yeah. these godless savages." And he and he just is assaulting him with that. We find out later as Chicory is talking to him, he says, they're, they're not coming. Are they? And Hunt's like, no, no, they're not coming. And he said, well, why'd you, why'd you lie? Why'd you say that to him? And this is something that speaks something more thematically to the movie, because when Chicory says, why did you say that to deputy Nick? And Sheriff Hunt says, if that were happening to me, it's what I would want to hear. Yeah. It's what I would want to, he's just to know that you would be avenged, which makes for a, a sort of a uh, a comically frightening scene later when something is happening to Sheriff Hunt and Chicory tries to do the same thing by yeah. going, you will be avenged, you <laughs> yeah. will be avenged. And it's just so, it's so feeble compared to what Hunt was doing. But, yeah. but what that all speaks to, the town that they're from is called Bright Hope. Mm-hmm. In a script this intentional, that's not an accident. Yeah, Hope as a word and as a concept is everywhere in this in this movie, yeah, um, which is a surprising thing to say in a film this gruesome yeah. and this grisly and stark. It's a and, very stark movie, absolutely. But that moment, yeah, it, it solidifies it. Hope for Hunt, like like Deputy Nick is saying to Hunt, yeah. like I, I want to give you. He's assuring him, and he's also you know validating him. But there's also a bit of hope, like. You are just in in how you live your life and how you engage with this world because you were, despite everything that happened, you were right about this. And then what's Hunt doing to Purvis in his final, or not Purvis, uh, he's doing it to Deputy Nick in his final moments. He's giving him hope. Whatever hope there is. Exactly. Not hope that he's going to be able to live out and actualize, but hope 
nonetheless. And there's another scene, uh, just to sort of wrap a bow on that, that when Chicory is moments later, after they've seen what Deputy Nick is happening, Chicory, in a random, a, a seemingly random moment, talks to Kurt Russell's character Hunt about the flea circus mm-hmm. and about like, oh, you know, my wife, who Chicory's wife's uh, passed away, uh, which leads to another line. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so Chicory is talking to Hunt and he says, you know, like, oh, well, uh, my wife was convinced that it was all a trick that they were just, you know, dead fleas attached to these little contraptions and using, they gave you the magnifying glass and, and I could see it. Mrs. O'Dwyer mm-hmm. in the other cell speaks up. They've witnessed Deputy Nick get killed. She's yeah. now seen two people get killed and she's trapped in that cell. And the only hope she has is that her crippled husband yeah. is somewhere else out there, possibly having to face about nine of these creatures yeah. as he's crippled. And still in that moment, she says back to Chicory, she says, many, many flea circuses use fake, but I know the Sandersons use real ones. Yeah. And then right as soon as she says that, Chicory has this kind of motion. He gets teary and he says, I knew it. Thank you for validating that. And then she winks at Sheriff Hunt. And I, when I watched that movie, I was like, this whole movie is about... It could be said to be about the necessity of hope, yeah, and how even in the even in the grimmest of situations, maybe especially, yeah, you need this this anchor of yeah. something to hope in and something to hold on to. She would have every reason in the world. Talk about humanizing a character and talk about you know like adding depth to a character we don't see very much. She would have every reason in the world to be like, what are you talking about, fleas? Don't you yeah. see our situation? Didn't you see what happened to the deputy? Don't you know what's going to happen to us? Yeah. She would have every reason in the world to lash out in that moment. And instead, she chooses that moment, even though she's she's telling a lie, she's telling a fib, but she chooses in that moment to give him hope and to infuse hope into the situation. Well, <sighs> it's, what, it's what separates them from the troglodytes. Yes. Is that giving each other hope, treating each other like people and even if it means a a little white lie um just extending one could say mercy actually Mm, mm -hmm. you know giving somebody hope in a hopeless situation is trying is giving them some some mercy right uh even if it's not necessarily yours to give um and yeah it's and the other thing that gets me about when sheriff hunt is talking to deputy nick as Nick is being killed is that there's just such an element of like in a moment when Nick feels, you know, nothing but blinding pain and is probably Mm -hmm. feeling so alone. Hunt is asserting that like, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say it, Mm -hmm. but just like, you're going to keep hearing my voice until the moment you're gone. Yeah. Because you're not actually alone right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that whole sequence in the midst of in the midst of in, insane gore yeah mm-hmm. and think of how many movies you've seen that are insane that are incredibly gory mm-hmm. and how much the scene is about the gore yeah now this movie is this scene is as well to a certain extent mm-hmm. but it's about the other character's reaction to that gore yeah and and trying their best to to make make the best of a bad situation yeah. uh, in the midst of that. That speaks to just the maturity of Bone Tomahawk as as a horror movie and certainly as a Western um, is just people 
really trying to to you know kind of uh not merely accept the darkness and not merely curse the darkness but to just light their own little match mm-hmm. it might not be much but it's something it's all they can do it's it's, it's the only thing hunt can do in that moment mm-hmm. um as much as he might want to like break out and kill all those uh, all those troglodytes he which can't he tries to do which he tries to do yeah but mm-hmm. he but he can't do it and mm-hmm. so the only thing he can do is give Nick hope at a moment that is the, that is as hopeless as you can be. Right. Um, it's such a powerful scene and, and this is, and, and then, you know, things don't go super great for Sheriff Hunt. He does wind up dying, but in a way that's fairly heroic. Mm -hmm. Um, which then leads to another, another line that I will say in my mind, if I try to say it, sounds as hokey as can be, mm-hmm. which is, as we've established, uh, Chicory's wife has died. Yeah. Uh, Sheriff Hunt's wife is still alive and, and he lives with her and all that. Um, and there comes a moment when Hunt is, he's, he's going to die. Everyone else is, is free. They can leave the cave uh, before the, the rest of the troglodytes come back. And so... Uh, so Chicory and Hunt have their last little goodbye and Hunt says, uh, say goodbye, say goodbye to my wife and I'll say hello to yours. Mm-hmm. That line is almost on paper. I would say could be a little bit too movie ish mm. because it's just, it's a little bit too, too clean. Yeah, it's neat. Mm-hmm. It's neat. But I, I will say that I believe that Hunt could say something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's best to keep things simple when you're talking to Chicory. But then all, but this is where Kurt Russell as an actor just shines. Yeah. He takes that line and it doesn't seem neat. It doesn't seem simple, even, even though it is. It seems like, it seems like uh, giving himself hope. Mm-hmm. Because he, you know, when he says, "I'll say hello to yours," he's talking about heaven. He's talking yes. about being united with people, mm-hmm. um, and something that he's looking forward to after he is undoubtedly killed by the rest of these troglodytes. Right, and it's just a, uh, it's it. He just infuses it with so much meaning, and it has meaning anyway. But it's just it is a a highlight of the film is that mm-hmm. line. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I cannot, you know, it's weird to be talking about these things, you know, in the midst of a, of a horror discussion. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, this is a film that deals with darkness. It deals with a certain degree of hopelessness Mm -hmm. as far as circumstances. Um, because when they're in those cages, there's no way they're getting out. Right. It's not possible. Their only hope is the, is the crippled husband, you know, and that's no hope. No. And Mm-mm. so, uh, but it finds light in the midst of, of this darkness and, you know, um, and I will also say, and this is a, it's weird to go into something that is almost logistical, but I think the design of the troglodytes is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that the, they are very animalistic in some way. Right. And, you know, which, which really there, there's a scene where, um, uh, Mr. O'Dwyer mm-hmm. is 
he's kind of catching on to what these things are and what their limitations are and stuff. And he winds up killing one. Mm -hmm. And then he discovers that they don't really have vocal cords, so to speak. Right. They have like these weird whistle type things in their, in their larynx. larynx. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he, I think takes it out and I think, does he, I don't think he, does he like blow on it like a whistle or something? He uses it. So he, so he cuts it out of the one that he's killed, uh, which actually I was watching. I was like, wow, it's, it's a lengthy scene. Like, like it takes him some effort to get it free. And so he cuts it out and then uses it to lure them. Yeah. So like he will, you know, because he's obviously crippled. So he moves into a new area where he knows one is, but can't see it. Yeah. And then he blows on that thing that came from the throat of this other one. And so then that's when one comes around like almost curious, like what? And here's what gets me. And this speaks to the design of the troglodytes and I will say the actors playing them. Mm. Um, Cause I feel like I don't give enough credit to like actors that are purely physical. Mm. Which is weird because right, I right. know Doug Jones um, who that's his whole career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the troglodytes are so brutal and so efficient at killing mm-hmm. that even though Mr. O'Dwyer, he's got a gun out, he's ready. Yeah. The gun is loaded. He is prepared to kill this thing. And yet when he blows, uh, on the larynx whistle, um, <laughs> and one of the, and this troglodyte comes running, I still, and then like just starts running at him. Yes. Even though I know that like, yeah, this bullet's going to kill this thing. No problem. I still am like, oh, geez. Yeah. This is because because there's no hesitation. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop and process, hey, there's a gun on me. It just shows up, starts running at him. Mm -hmm. There's no, like an animal would. Yeah, it's a predator. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, because the more adept at killing these things are, the more hopeless it seems for our guys. Because these aren't, these aren't, uh, beings that could that simply kill you close up they have the ability to use i think i, I think a bow and arrow right yeah or at least them, projectile uh weapons yeah one no they, they use arrows to first ambush our heroes yeah so and uh and in fact one of the smart things from a script perspective that zoller does is taking out Bruder so quickly yeah because Bruder is clearly the most accomplished killer in this group so the fact that he is the the first of the group to die and is taken out very easily mm-hmm. um it's and it, it, they even he even says like i'll i'll kill as many as i can and you can see you know quick note to matthew fox that he delivers a great performance in that yeah. moment because you can see the weight that his life is ending he he yeah. says the words this is my spot and yeah. you see in the emotion that he brings to it like okay i've just said it i'm about i'm about to die i'm yeah. moments from dying um but he says i'll kill as many as i can one yeah he gets one before, because as he fires his weapon, that other one is hurling a tomahawk at him, and yeah. you discover later that Chicory sees the tomahawk hit its mark. Yeah. So the fact that Zoller took out Bruder so quickly makes the peril for our other heroes all the more tense and yeah. nerve-wracking, because we know, like, oh man, Bruder was the best killer of the bunch, and he was taken out almost as an afterthought. Yeah. So how were how are the rest of these guys going to fare up? And it especially makes the moment with moments with Mister O'Dwyer all the more nerve wracking because he's the most debilitated of any of them. He is the least uh, capable of doing anything. But if you'll pardon me, (laughs) 
he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Um, I was going to say, I, I thought you were about to say he had help. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that as well. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but at the same, but this, at the same time, like I, as a Christian look at his circumstances and how hopeless they are, but that he, he gets his strength from not merely a love for his wife, not merely an anger, but also from this idea of, and does, isn't there a moment again, I haven't seen it in a while. Isn't there a moment when he, he asks God for help, but in a way that's just like, come on. Like, yeah. like he's, he's almost a little, he's just very weary. Yeah. Because the first time he asks, he asks it twice. And the first time he asks, he's a little sort of ultimatum That's not a word, but, uh, he basically says like, this is why I've been praying to you all these years for a little help. Yeah. And so, and he's kind of like got a, an aggressiveness to him later after he's been successful in killing like two or three of these things, then he sees the gravesite and he looks up one more time and it is that defeat yeah. sort of the resignedness that you're alluding to where he's like, you see in this, <laughs> you know, yeah. like you see in this too, like, please tell me you're, you're still here. You yeah. know, um, it's, it's great because there's an, there is a, an unspoken assumption like, are you seeing this? Cause if you are, you're probably not liking it. Right. Yeah. Which means you don't want these guys to keep going. Sure. So help me out. Um, but it's, and it's a little bit ultimatum and, it, but that's the thing is there's, there's precedent for that Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the absolutely. Bible, people mm-hmm. saying like, it, it's, it's not necessarily the, the right attitude, but it's one that is very common, which is come on, like, what's the point of being all powerful if you're going to let these monsters live? Right. Um, right. so, uh, so I think we'll, we'll move into the companion film which is Toby Hooper's 1974 horror masterpiece. Unquestionably. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this movie so much. It's it a is, top hundred for you, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I just, every time I watch it, I cannot get over how perfectly it is pulled off Mm -hmm. it is not an easy movie to watch it is ugly in a lot of ways and yet beautiful at the same time um the way it uses color the way it composes shots the way it does use you know some pretty quick editing sometimes um is very unnerving very unsettling and yes to me scary Mm -hmm. um Almost any time Leatherface shows up, it's it's almost always fairly abruptly. Yes. Whether it be that guy very slowly walking down the hallway, and then Leatherface is just there and kills him immediately. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then slams that steel door. Oh, my gosh. It's one of the scariest moments in the movie to me. It is. Is when he slams the door after he's already executed the act of violence. Yeah. But the slamming of the door is almost more violent than his yeah. killing of the man. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Because it's so definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's the first time we've seen Leatherface. And it then, is. oh, my gosh, how horrifying. And then when he gets, uh, oh, hang on, what's his name? Franklin. When he gets Franklin... Uh-huh. In the in the woods, just out of nowhere. Which actually, for a film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Franklin's the only one to die by a chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but yeah, when it's it it's brutal. It's a brutal moment. Um, and yet the film is not remarkably gory. Mm-hmm. You know, Bone Tomahawk is infinitely more uh, yeah, yeah. horrendous. Oh yeah. Uh, but so much of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's you're coming in after the fact, and you're able to piece together that the lives that these monsters are living is a life of constant gore. 
Yes. Just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not there. And that's a choice that I love. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have tried to, uh, you know, it was 1974. We'd seen, we'd seen Night of Living Dead already, which, yes. which featured guts mm-hmm. and it featured people eating, yeah. uh, zombies eating people. Um, so it could have tried to do that, but it doesn't. And there's even, a, there's a scene where a woman gets hung up on a meat hook. Oh. We don't see the hook go in or anything like that. It's just what you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, and what you can piece together from the evidence. And it's, it's wonderful filmmaking. Like it's, it's sort of like, uh, like the shower scene from Psycho where you never actually see the knife go in, but right. you, you don't need to. Right. Um, yeah. so you feel it almost. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and that, that, that meat hook yes. scene. I get a sore spot in my back every yeah. time I watch it. It just feels so, mm-hmm. it's a very visceral film. Um, and that is a film that, that often seems hopeless to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I'm talking about is that, you know, the, the family, uh, of Leatherface is, they, they don't approach people as people anymore. Right. Like they, they kill people and then I'm pretty sure they sell them as barbecue at their local uh, barbecue joint. Yeah. Which is, Ugh. Oh, can't even think about it. <laughs> Yeah, they they even say like they they try to get grandpa, which talk about frightening yeah. from a from everything from a makeup perspective, from a story perspective, everything. Grandpa yeah. is just terrifying. They try to get grandpa to kill Sally, yeah. you know, because he's the best killer, you yeah. know, and they treat it like they're watching somebody, you know, try to take the head off a chicken or something. Like yeah. it, they, it's it's interesting because I didn't even really think about it or really put it together until this moment, but the monsters in both bone tomahawk and texas chainsaw massacre they they have dehumanized people to the degree that as you as you pointed out a couple of times that they they're not even human anymore they are they are merely yeah. meat that's that's all they are um and it's funny because i'll say this very quickly and i don't even know if i can say the name of the film on this show but i was watching uh, a movie uh, i'll just i'll just censor myself and call it a, it's called big a spider um, and, uh, I was watching this movie. There's a reason I point out the silliness of that title because something happens to me whenever I'm watching a movie it happens to me in bone tomahawk. It happens to me in Texas chainsaw massacre, but it's a little bit more understandable in these movies. There's a scene in that spider movie I referenced earlier where, uh, a homeless man in his sixties becomes the victim of this thing. And it's played for silliness and it's almost yeah. played for laughs where like the spider like spits acid on him and he dissolves. But when I was watching that movie, the thought briefly blipped my brain where I was like, hmm, man lived 60 years of his life and that's the that's the fate that he and you know yeah. he used to be a baby, used to be some of this might be a little bit just my own sensibilities, some of it might be the parent in me, some of it might just be my faith. I'm not quite sure, but there's something yeah. that blips and registers like this this is a life that is being expunged yeah. in a silly B movie about a monster, you know, about yeah. a monster spider. So then I, I register. Also, spiders don't spit acid. No, they don't. Well, this Come one on. did. Oh. Well, this one did. But the, the but the, my, my point being, you know, every single time, whether I'm watching an action film, watching a horror film, watching what happens to Deputy Nick, watching what happens to to these people in uh, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and what happens to Sally, good Lord. I mean, she, yeah. Sally makes it out, but I almost don't know who has it worse. <laughs> yeah, that is... That is a conclusion that uh, that that uh, I've come to in in recent viewings is that like, yeah, she might have gotten out, but her life is basically over. She'll continue living. 
Yeah. Provided yeah. she doesn't kill herself at some point, which is not a guarantee. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. It's but, crazy. But what registers in my heart is this is a life. Mm-hmm. This is a life that's being expunged. And it's something that I think we can easily lose when we're having a variety of conversations. Yeah. Um, and for, and the horror genre gets its, the finger pointed at it a lot for some misogyny and for, uh, for just basically treating people like livestock. But there's something as much as I love the genre, there's something that always registers with me of like, this is where the heartbeat stopped. This mm-hmm. is where the, the life, the, the, the soul left. This is the moment at which that life is no more. Everything that they we're going to be or are or everything yeah. is is done. That's the, yeah. the period at the end of the sentence. That's a very unforgiven attitude. Uh, yeah. You take away everything he has and everything he's ever going to have. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that's another reason why I love that movie is because I think that film deals with that uh, very directly, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I think when we're examining this, I do think that's what separates us from um, – from being animals, that yeah. that's what separates us from just being beasts or monsters, um, is is this notion of we understand the value of a life and what what a life means. Not even just the life on mass, but the singularity of a life. Yeah. That um, that it. I think that when we lose touch with that, we've lost a significant element of what makes us human. Yeah. Just from my own perspective. You know, it's odd that you say that because uh, I was recently rewatching Judgment at Nuremberg. Have you ever seen it? That's a blind spot for me. I've never seen that movie. It's yet. marvelous. Love it. It's about three hours long. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's, I, I wasn't planning on bringing up the Holocaust uh, before, much less twice. Hmm. But at the, at the end of the film, um, Spencer Tracy delivers this monologue about the value of a single human life. Hmm. And that, you know, because the, the people on trial in Judgment at Nuremberg are judges, you know, they are not the higher ups. Mm. These are the guys who had to execute the law. And sometimes that meant sentencing somebody to death that they knew to be innocent. Mm. And so, you know, there comes a moment when, uh, when one of those judges, one, uh, one of the accused played by Burt Lancaster, he says, he says, uh, sorry, it's weird to be hearing an adorable cat as I'm talking about such <laughs> terrible things. Um, he says, he says, you know, I had no idea it was going to come to that. You know, those millions of people, I had no idea. And Spencer Tracy says, well, it came to that the moment you sent somebody to death that you knew to be innocent, mm. which is to say, yes, millions, that's insane. But it's a, it's millions of individuals. Yeah. And the minute you you sentenced one you sentenced all of them essentially, right? Because one human life is very valuable, and yeah, I ha- it's getting as I've gotten older. Um, that scene from Big A Spider mm-hmm. would have gotten me, partially yeah. because it j- it feels the fact that the character is homeless on top of everything yeah, else, right? Right? Because right. it's just like you know, it's not enough that society treats these people as expendable, but now this filmmaker is as well. <laughs> right? Come on, right. hasn't this guy mm-hmm. had enough? <laughs> Uh, tough. I know he's fictional, but still. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, it's odd that we, it, we, we just talked about Judgment at Nuremberg and Big A Spider. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it is, it, the, the reason that it is so frightening to me is because of the dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And that's what gets me about Bone Tomahawk. And that is the stuff of real horror for me. Yeah. So, and when you're in the midst of, of when the characters are in the midst of these circumstances, there's no hope. It's just pure darkness. You know? Right, right. And that idea of darkness and hopelessness is something that I wanted to to talk about thematically. And so um, I, I have a, I have a lot of verses, and I think we might just have to read them in rapid succession. Got it. All right? And there are a bunch. So I think we'll just split them. Split them up. Yeah. You go. So I'll, I'll go. go Mark, and then you go John, and then we move on. Okay. Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Psalm 23, 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restarted, uh, restarted, restored, oh, typo. He restored my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Uh, stay tuned. We'll get back to uh, Psalm 23 in a moment. All right. John chapter 12, verse 35 to 36, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. All right. Uh, oh, okay. Got that one already. Um, Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Colossians 1, 13 through 15, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5, 8 through 9. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. In Psalm 23, 5 oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Psalm 23, five through six, thou prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now we just went through a lot of stuff there and I wanted it to be a sort of a progression of like how bad things can be, how bad darkness can be and how fruitless it can be, but that there is a light uh, that we can live by and that the more we live by that, the more it will start to define us and then we will start to be children of light. And I actually, okay, you're going to have to just go with me on this one. Psalm 23, five, thou prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now let's think back to old Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. Sally, that's her name, right? Sally. Yeah, Sally. Mm -hmm. She is, towards the end of the film, sitting at a table mm -hmm. in the presence of her enemies. Yeah. Uh, these enemies are going to kill and eat her at some mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Um, and it is just the, like, as I was looking at this, I thought like, 
what a great companion film because if you want an image just sitting at a table with your enemies you know i'm sure some people might picture james bond and mm-hmm. uh you know that's fine what i picture is texas chainsaw massacre like these are enemies these are people that want to literally destroy you mm-hmm. and they're just animalistic in doing so they are darkness they are I won't say irredeemable because everybody is redeemable, but they have no interest in such things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the sheer horror of that situation. Um, but thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I wanted to focus on that last one simply because we've got a table. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we have a house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is a place of darkness. It is a place of inhumanity. And it is a place of hopelessness. And God promises us, and if we look at something like Bone Tomahawk, we see that sometimes a little bit of hope can be enough to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. It's not going to guarantee that everyone's going to make it out. Yeah. But that hope is what dictates the actions of Sheriff Hunt. Mm-hmm. They dictate the actions of Arthur and Chicory and Samantha. And I will go ahead and say, even Deputy Nick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, is about as expendable as the movie is, is, will allow him to be. Even he acknowledges that there is something that even in the, in the darkest of times, and he is in the darkest of times. Yeah. Um, you still don't have to let, your behavior be dictated by the darkness. Yeah. May I say one brief thing? Sure. Um, so this to kind of, this is what it's sparking in me and it's making me come alive. Uh, the, the table image in Texas chainsaw massacre, uh, that's a very deliberate image. I think it's incredibly appropriate, but even in, in bone tomahawk, you have a different house with a different kind of table yeah. and a different kind of enemy, but it's the it's the same basic thing. And exactly what you talk about when you say the Lord, the scripture says the Lord prepares a table. That's who he's talking to. He says, you prepare a table. And he's talking to the Lord. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I'm sitting here, perhaps this is a bit cheesier than you'd like to be. Okay. I hope it's not, but I'm sitting here. I'm like, well, what is, what is the table? What do we feast upon? And the thing that I keep getting from these movies is is hope. That's, yeah. that's, that's the table that is prepared for us is, is that hope that, that this is not the end, that this table we're seeing, these enemies we're seeing, that, that that's not the end, that that's not the, the ultimate for it. So the table that's prepared for us is that there's a hope beyond this, the hope beyond what we see um, that we can feast from wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And let me, because you've, you've got me thinking now, let me uh, further suggest that Leatherface, Leatherface and his terrible family mm-hmm. and the troglodytes, at their table, they eat other people. Mm-hmm. At the Lord's table, we, we eat and drink of him. Mm-hmm. That is what communion mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And that is, we are, we are, and in doing so, we are ingesting the hope that comes with him and it is a part of us. And we become to go with these verses, we become children of light. Mm -hmm. And so we, and so even that's not, again, not a guarantee that everything's going to go great for you all the time, Sure, but that you don't have to be overcome by that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay. This was a fun discussion. 
lots of stuff going on. Listener, if you listen to the end, all the way through this and you didn't see Bone Tomahawk, I'm officially angry at you now. <laughs> because there's no reason not to see Bone Tomahawk. And even though we, I'll say this, I, we, we've told you a lot of story. Right. And a lot of, you know, we've told you how certain characters die and that sort of thing. Um, we're still not doing the movie justice because we have, we've quoted right. a handful of lines of dialogue and yeah. we've, we've made reference to some of their performances, but like until you see, until you hear this dialogue delivered by these actors with the pace that, that, uh, that, uh, Craig Zoller has or the pace that he sets, uh, until you engage in any of that, then like our descriptions are, are nothing. Mm -hmm. they, they serve no purpose at all. So, um, so yeah, if you feel like we've maybe spoiled it for you, I apologize. Actually, I'm not apologizing. I told you not to listen. <laughs> um, but uh, but still go out and, and go seek out the movie because it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe don't watch them on the same day because oh, yeah. it'll be a little uh, tiresome. You'll need a bath. <laughs> yeah. No, no question. Oh, these are dirty. These are dirty movies. Dirty movies. And when I mean when I say dirty, I'm, I don't mean like smutty. I mean like ugh. Yeah. Like yeah. gross. Yeah, exactly. Almost any movie that takes place in Texas probably is just like I'm not. I need a bath afterwards, yeah. just because like it's hot and it's humid and it's muggy. No, thank Ugh. you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that concludes. By the way, that concludes Halloween times. So I wanted to thank Andrew Claven for being on at the beginning of the month. I want to thank Reed for being on a couple of times. I want to thank Josh, and I want to thank all of you for uh, for listening. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments, you can leave them in the comment section of this post at morethanonelesson.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at morelessons. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, what is your Twitter again? At Reed Lackey. At Reed Lackey. It makes sense. Uh, so I think that is about it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Reed, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And we'll get you next time.